Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with the theater company Pearl Damore, which is Katie Pearl and Lisa Damore, about the book Milton, a performance and community engagement experiment. Pearl Damore, welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, so you're both very accomplished theater artists in your own right. Lisa, you're a playwright. Katie, you're a playwright and director and I think sometime performer as well. Mm. And uh, Katie, I actually saw your piece, You Are the Circus, at Brown when oh, you were wow. uh, an MFA student. Uh-huh. Uh, Great. And I, I remember really enjoying that, though that was probably, you know, five years ago or something uh-huh. at this point. Thank you. Um, but you've been you've been a, a, a company together for quite some time. Could you tell us how the Pearl Damore kind of project started? Mm. Sure. Lisa, you want to take yeah, it away? I'll take a stab. Uh, okay. Katie and I met in Austin, Texas uh, in the late 90s. I was getting my MFA in playwriting, and Katie had moved to town to start a theater company that's still in existence called Physical Plant. And our mutual friends started telling us that we had to meet because we both had an <laughs> interest in site-specific theater. So we kept hearing about each other, uh, and I was out of town at first, but after a while, we finally met and pretty much instantly decided to create an outdoor theater performance together while we were both living in Austin. Right. And I was... um... I had just fallen in in love and been really influenced by a Welsh theater company, a site-specific theater company called Brithgoff. And when I um, landed in Austin, there was this grove of trees on the side of a busy road. And I was convinced that nobody was really paying attention to how cool and amazing that grove was. So Lisa and I made a piece to happen in the grove to be seen by passing cars. And so our goal was not to make people see what we put inside the grove, but to wake up the grove itself for the people who are driving by. And then has, has the majority of your work since then been site-specific? I, yeah. I think it's safe to say the majority of it has been, but there's also been quite a bit in theaters. But Often the work that we do that happens in theater spaces treats the theater space somewhat differently. Uh, So even if it's as simple as, you know, I I have a play that is written down on paper called Annabella Ema. It's published. It kind of looks like a play on paper. It looks like a series of three intertwining monologues. But when we produce the play with Katie directing it, um, You know, the play breaks the fourth wall. It really casts a spell. feels almost a little bit like being around a campfire listening to a ghost story. So even in that most, in something that's kind of a conventional play, we try to make the theater feel really different, you know. Mm -hmm. And really present. Mm -hmm. So there's an idea in, in music and sort of rock music of like the side project, which is sort of where you entertain your wilder ideas. Is that is that maybe a good analogy for Pearl Damore or is that uh, is that not quite right? That's great. I, I think that's fair. I mean, Lisa and I have always been able to count on each other to say yes to each other's imaginations and impulses and big questions. And and Pearl Damore is the place where we can give ourselves an impossible task and know that the other person is going to be right there kind of digging in and helping figure out what it is. So, and I think that, you know, Katie and I, from the moment we met, we, we both had like keen interest in visual art. We had interest in dance, like our interests were interdisciplinary from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And so that really played out in our early work. One of our first pieces, um, which eventually was called Bird Eye Blueprint. I was just really interested in doing a show where the primary language was visual. Mm -hmm. Um, And so especially I would say in the first eight to 10 years of our work, 
Pearl Demore was the main project more than the side project. Mm -hmm. And I would say that my playwriting and my playwriting style really grew out of the Pearl Demore aesthetic. Hmm. That's great. Yeah. And I think I could mirror that talking about directing as well, the kind of um, adventurous sort of directing that now I teach to my students is wholly grounded in the way that Lisa and I are in the room together and kind of accept what is and stay in conversation with what is rather than planning everything out in our little rooms and then going to make it happen somewhere. It's a very relational practice. And then are, you're, you're not still based in Austin, are you? No. No, sadly. Yeah, there's <laughs> something about job. that place. People really love it. I mean, yeah. We mentioned before we started recording I, that I talked to some of the people from Rude Max and they mm-hmm. were just raving about what a great uh, place Austin is to kind of create out there uh, work. Yeah. yeah. We're friends with the Rude Max and we still have lots of dear friends, you know, in that town, but we haven't, neither of us have lived there for a while. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to talking more about this specific project, mm-hmm. Milton, a performance and community engagement experiment. Mm-hmm. I feel like that title is uh, very evocative and, and kind of, a, it provides a good, doorway into talking about the play or or the 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 piece or the performance and community engagement experiment (laughs) so could you could you talk about what that phrase means to you performance and community engagement experiment sure i mean i'll say that I, i i agree that it can seem provocative but really and truly it just is what the project was because there was a lot that we were learning and discovering along the way. And, you know, the impulse for beginning the project was there were a couple of things, but one was at the time we were both living in New York City and we loved doing work with mostly the the downtown New York experimental community. Like that's where a lot of our work was getting done and really amazing, surrounded by really amazing people. Mm-hmm. But we also felt like we were very inside an urban bubble and inside an urban intellectual audience. And we were very curious. And we would just say to ourselves, like, about what's out there? Like, mm-hmm. what's happening? You know, like, what's happening in these small towns in America? Like, what would they make of our work? What could we learn? And so in some ways, our initial impulse was just to kind of go out and explore and learn and figure out what and and initially we were like, what would it be to bring our experimental aesthetic to these towns? Mm-hmm. On, it was a very naive beginning of the mm-hmm. project. Um, and and I, go ahead, Katie. Well, I think what we discovered as we started, so we chose five towns that shared a name. We, for some reason, we thought like five was a handleable number, mm-hmm. um, and we googled most commonly named cities, and Milton's in the top twenty of the most common city names, and. It just appealed to us for fairly arbitrary reasons. I have a great uncle, Milton. We thought, you know, John Milton, Paradise Lost might evoke some some big questions. And so we looked at all the Miltons and we chose them to get a good spread of um, geography and industry profile and demographic and size and ease of us getting to it. And we can talk more about sort of the, the step-by-step process of how the project began, but to, to build on what Lisa was just talking about, once we were engaged in the project and visiting the towns, we needed to get to know the people who lived there. And so we came up with a series of four questions that could spawn some conversations, but really to get to know somebody and get to know a place, we needed to work together. We needed to make something together. That's that's how we understand the world. And so this the community engagement really grew out of us um, trying to to learn who these towns are. And then and then our thinking about it became much more direct and complex um, about how our presence could actually serve and help the town move towards things that that they were trying trying to move towards um, and then could, could you say what those questions were the kind of core questions that you built the performance around sure uh the first one was how did you get to milton do you want to say the second katie the second was <laughs> if there were one thing you could change about the world what would it be the third was, what is your advice for future generations? And the fourth, 
was, why do you think we are here on this earth? Yeah. And we would... <laughs> it ramps up pretty quickly yeah. from yeah. the mundane <laughs> to the existential. Yes, purposely. Well, and we, you know, we, we developed the questions over our first several visits. And one thing we realized early on was starting with the existential question would often shut people down. Yeah. And when we would just kind of ask them how they got to Milton or why did they live there, people would start telling these stories that were filled with such interesting detail that would sometimes just get to the existential mm-hmm. questions. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the the framework that we wound up developing is that when we would sit down with an individual or a pair of people or a group, we would say, you know, we usually ask people four questions. Do you want to hear them? And they say, and, yes. And then we would say <laughs> all four questions right up front. Mm-hmm. Wow. And they would often, you know, react by going like, whoa, <laughs> that's a big question. Oh, but you then they could kind of choose which one they wanted to start with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was a way of both inviting them to answer the what seemed to be the simplest question, but kind of uh, also inviting them into the existential experiment, which is what interested us. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so I, I kept thinking about two kind of predecessors of this project, which is uh, Whitman and mm. Our Town. Those mm. are the two things that kept coming up to me that this in, you know, in Whitman, in the, in the text of the play, you have these kind of cascading sentences that mm. uh, kind of accumulate detail over time. And the kind of accumulation of small details takes on this larger cosmic feeling. And that's also kind of what Our Town's doing mm. in a way. Uh, you know, there's all those population statistics and information about the mineral content of the surrounding hills. Mm-hmm. And then that third act just is just a total gut punch. Were those uh, conscious in- inspirations for this piece? I don't think so. Such an interesting question. And I wouldn't say so. Mm-hmm. No, I don't know that we, Lisa, you and I ever talked about models or inspirations for the kind of play that came out. Yeah. I'm trying to think. You know, Andy, the things we did talk about is what what we wanted it to feel like in the audience. Mm. And we and we talked about that and we so what we knew we wanted it to feel like was we wanted people to feel welcome and at home and as though the play was happening within a community that they recognized. So we very specifically chose for the play to happen in spaces as best we could where the, where as many audience members could feel ownership over that space. So in Milton, Massachusetts, that was the library. Um, Kids, especially students um, and their parents would travel through the library. We're really comfortable there in Milton Freewater, Oregon, it was on the stage of the high school because there was one school in town. So no matter who you were, if you had a child, the high school was a familiar place for you. And um, different things would come up in the play that kind of speak to that comfort or make it feel like a sort of backyard barbecue or a family reunion. We would pass photos of our of our research time, our visits to the town around the audience, and we would pass artifacts. So there were these really lovely moments in the play where the audience would be talking to each other, or they'd be seeing pictures that they would recognize. Um, and so in some ways, kind of moving towards these iconic feelings. Um, Yeah. And I think what I would add in relation to the two works that Andy cited is that they both, um, you know, incorporate super basic details that accumulate into something more cosmic. Yeah. And what happened with the making of the play is we we didn't start our interviews knowing what kind of play we wanted to make. And Mm -hmm. I mean, we interviewed so many people. There were just, you know, hundreds of hours of interviews with really interesting people. And it was really hard to know where to begin. And I can remember being in my own existential crisis Mm -hmm. about how to make the piece. And Mm -hmm. so I I really just tried to start thinking about, like, how, how can we give a taste of the rich and complex detail Mm -hmm. that makes up the tapestry of all of these towns. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, we really started thinking about snapshots and about like a single note that can ring really clearly. 
kind and, of that pointillism. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of mm-hmm. where this like list strategy started with making the with making the show. And you know, maybe we should tell about our sometimes lists because that was also mm-hmm. core to the structure. So as we yes. were visiting these places and having these conversation after conversation, but also being invited into really personal, intimate, wonderful, interesting experiences, we knew that we were going to forget so much of it. So we started asking ourselves at the end of each day to write, to record what we had gone through. And we, and, we yeah. usually recorded the interviews, but this, this, this was an exercise that allowed us to really see what was popping and sticking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And at first we would write something down like, okay, well in Milton, Louisiana, you, people hand you kumquats straight from the tree. And then we would look at that and be like, well, that's kind of true. Sometimes people give you kumquats straight from the tree. And so the word sometimes started to become a very important word for us, even as we were recording our experiences to acknowledge the specificity and the idiosyncrasy of each detail. So we would accumulate lists and lists of sometimes this happens, sometimes that happens. And at a certain point, mid existential crisis, Lisa was like, I think we just have to say those lists as, as the basis for the script. Which is a, that ends up being a lot of the actual text mm-hmm. of the of the performance. Mm-hmm. Um, could you talk a, a little bit about kind of what the performance sounded like and looked like? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, the audience in each location was situated in a, almost a circle. It was sort of like a five sided. There were like five sets of risers. Uh, and the performers began seated in the audience. So you didn't necessarily know who was a performer at the top of the show. Uh, Mm. And depending on the venue, there were either clear plexiglass projection screens hanging overhead, or um, later on, the walls would be used with like, with circular projections. Um, But when you came into the theater, it felt pretty plain, kind yeah. of like the space, a Absolutely. space that you recognized. Um, there wasn't a lot of set except for these like kind of odd things taped on the floor. And in most of the Miltons, we would also often have opening acts where we would have local performers come and like play guitar or sing cabaret songs um, just to kind of like have some music and color as you were coming in. Um, And then Katie and I would stand up and kind of give an introduction and tell, give like the briefest description of the overarching project. And as we described each Milton in this introduction, a piece of the, these screens would start lighting up with pieces of the sky over Milton Freewater or Milton, North Carolina. Um, And so that was like the introduction of the video screens to the audience. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we would leave and there would just be quiet for a few minutes and the opening lines of the play would start, which was just the actors kind of saying these details. Um, and we often say that the beginning of the play felt like a Quaker meeting mm-hmm. that there was silence and a lot of silence between the lines, but then these details would start picking up and then suddenly they would start to sing the details. And then suddenly that song would turn into like, a longer monologue that zoomed in more specifically on one person from one Milton. So the, it was a very fluid structure uh, throughout the whole piece. Um, uh, and I think you never quite knew where it was going to go next. Mm-hmm. Would you agree, Katie? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and a lot of interaction between the performer and the audience. So mm-hmm. as Katie said, there were photos that were, that were, passed around there's this one section where the actors um would assign jobs um from people that we met in each milton whether that was um the mayor of a town or an elementary school teacher or the water meter reader and you you would get assigned a new occupation as an audience member um to kind of give a feel for all of the ways that people kind of made a living in Mm -hmm. so it was playful surprising and then sometimes with really um, haunting and lovely acapella music um, in, in there as well. 
And you talked earlier a bit about kind of the initial impulse being to kind of find out what do people in small town America think of our experimental theater? Mm -hmm. And it seems like that impulse, you know, evolved through the process, but is present in the final production. You talk about in the book how you eventually sort of started calling it a play Mm -hmm. uh, to make it understandable to the audience members. But it's, it's not really a play in the traditional sense that of traditional characters and a naturalistic story. So I'm just curious, how did people react to this, you know, fairly uh, strange piece of theater. <laughs> I think overall, um, they they reacted really well. I mean, it was interesting that the people who there were some people who had never been to the theater before, and in 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 a way that's actually not surprising, although it sounds surprising, they had the, almost a, the easiest time with it mm-hmm. because they didn't have any expectations about what theater should or shouldn't be. But I think what was so special for the audience, um, whether or not they like, you know, left feeling like that was the most amazing play I've ever seen in my life, is that they really felt seen. We heard that over and over again, and that was something that was important to us, that we were being given huge gifts by these people sharing their lives and their thoughts with us and gifting us with artifacts and things they've made that then became part of the show. And, and what we could give back was really acknowledging and shining a light on the complexity of, of who they are and of their towns. And when mm-hmm. early on, when we would ask people, you know, what do you want other people to know about your town? We would often hear something like, we just want people to know that we're not dumb. That small town doesn't <laughs> equal stupid, you know? Yeah. And, um, and so that was, I think that that was a, a, something that really worked in the play for the audiences. Mm. I mean, this is something you ju- just based on what you just said, I, it, there's a real divide in this country between kind of urban life and small town life. And this is something you write about a bit in the book, this sense of, of, uh, being a bit apprehensive about how people might respond to you mm. or, or an awareness that maybe people would be responding to you differently if you were, uh, you know, not, I think you just say like two nice looking white ladies at a yeah. certain point. Yeah. Um, could you talk a bit about that process? I mean, was it uncomfortable for you to be in, in this environment? Did people respond to you with a similar apprehension? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, part of part of the process of multiple visits was was building trust and yeah. making people realize that we were going to you know, come back and invest in their town in different ways and uh I mean, the the funniest one of the funniest examples of it is there was this amazing woman named Cleota Jeffries in Milton, North Carolina. She was in her late 80s when we met her and we had we mailed, we knew we wanted to talk to her because she was like 80 something and had lived in Milton her whole life. She was yeah. an African American woman. And so I think we sent her a letter. I think we did. We sent her a letter yeah. and we were like trying to figure out like how do we get to Cleota? And Cleota called Harriet Brandon, the mayor of Milton, North Carolina, and said, she, I think her exact words were, Do you know who these two ladies are I want to make sure they're not the flim flam man yeah <laughs> you know and so Harriet like told her we were okay and then she said well I'll see her if I can invite my friend Nancy Hughes over who was mm-hmm. about the same age mm-hmm. and then eventually we got to go see Cleota um but there was like there was there's over and over stories about that because I think in some of the places they were just like who are these two artists quote unquote artists from New York mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. And uh, it was really hard for them to understand what our intentions were. Um, And that's really how the idea to do artwork with the town kind of in addition to our play or folded into our play came to be, Mm. um, was that we wanted to actually do something with them Mm -hmm. that was not only a way to get to know them, to have fun with them, to build trust with them, to learn about the town by doing to spread the word about our play mm-hmm. and also to help them in, in almost every case, it, the project was a way that art could be used 
to make their town a better place to live or to solve a problem they were currently chewing on in their time mm-hmm. in their town. Mm-hmm. So I think another misconception that people in cities have about small town America is that everyone's white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something you talk about in there are some of the towns that are pretty white. I think the town, the Louisiana town is like more than 90% white, but there are other towns that have large black populations, large Hispanic populations that have shifting racial dynamics. How did you navigate that issue in developing this piece? Uh, Wisconsin was the whitest. Mm-hmm. Wisconsin, it was okay. really white, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about that with in a lot of our interviews with people. Um, you know, this piece gave us that experience um, that's so true, which is that it is much easier to meet people who look like you than it is to meet people who don't. Um, and in any in every case, we we learned pretty quickly that one way to to meet a lot of people is to go to church, which was new for me. I had never really gone to church before in my life. And um, in a place like Milton, North Carolina, for example, um, which I think is probably around 50 50 white and black, um, the churches are very segregated by color. And so on some level, you just say like, I'm not just going to go to the white churches, I'm also going to go to the black churches and, and, and to be with a community on their home turf where you are their guest and they can welcome you and extend hospitality and you can be a good guest was a, a, a very clear starting point for us to build relationships with that community in North Carolina, for example. And I, I think, you know, the one thing that was striking to me is there, there is no rule of thumb when it comes to really reaching out and meeting as diverse Mm. of a cross section as you can in a town Mm. because each town is so different. So, you know, in Milton Freewater, Oregon, where the population is 50% Latino, we started hearing very quickly about how awesome the heritage club was, which Mm -hmm. was the name of basically the club in the high school for Latino kids. And so we got the name of the person who ran that club and then went to one of their meetings. Mm -hmm. And, you know, through them, we eventually hired some of those kids to help us do some organizing for the show. We met their parents, you know, we, they helped us plan activities that could bring people together. Um, But that was the way we had to do it in that town. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there was just a little bit of a different story, but it takes a lot of trial and error and persistence Mm -hmm. and asking the right people uh, and, eventually making friends with as many people as you can. Mm-hmm. And educating yourself about what the historical legacy is of mm-hmm. race in that town. Because it's Yeah, different. really big in Milton, Massachusetts. Yes. Yeah, and in Milton, Massachusetts, um, one of the collaborations we really helped launch was a series of conversations that an African-American woman had wanted to start for a very, very long time. And the project was able to kind of give her the momentum to do that, which is um, a series called Courageous Conversations, which is essentially inviting people to get together to talk about race in their town. Milton, North Carolina, I mean, Milton, Massachusetts, sorry, has in Massachusetts, I think the highest rate of racial profiling as a town. And so it was something that was very present for people but not easily talked about. So when we were reimagining the show for that town, our kind of community uh, advisors really pushed us to to be quite upfront in the script about those realities. Hmm. And one of the questions, not one of the four questions, but uh, a broader, a question or a broader sense of this piece is sort of the meaning of being an American at Mm. this point in our history and I don't expect you to answer the question of what does it mean to be an American, but what, what were some of the more interesting answers to that question that came up in your investigation? Mm. Yeah, we didn't ask that question directly, actually. That was more Sometimes. of an overarching. Did, did Sometimes we? I did. Yeah, I sort of had it in my back pocket <laughs> as like a fifth question. Mm. I mean, I did get some specific answers that had to do with um, the freedom of choice. But... Um, one thing I love about the play is is the answer that Lisa came up with and put in the script. Lisa, I don't know if you remember when you the moment you put this in the script, but that this the play 
culminates towards a moment of um, similar to when the audience is assigned jobs. Later in the play, there's a parallel section where the audience is assigned beliefs and values that we heard from people. And it was a, it was a scary moment for us to put that in the play because we had no idea what the beliefs and values were of the people in the audience or whether when the actors assigned them a belief, if it was going to sit comfortably on top of their own or not. And there were some hot button issues. Um, But that whole sequence ended in a series of lines where the actors say, you believe this country was built for people to live side by side and live out many points of view. And then another actor comes in and says, but you don't always want to be in them. That's not quite the line. What's be in the room with them. I think the room with them. That's right. Um, And this idea that right to be an American means you are in, in rooms with people side by side, moving forward and you may or may not agree with how they live in the world, but that's what this country is. And we're still in the room together. We can't pretend we're not in the room together. And I, I love that answer you came up with, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Well, and it was totally wild doing this project with with no knowledge of what was going to come in yeah. this country. Because yeah. this was all pre-Trump. Although I think Milton, Massachusetts happened what? right right after the election it happened yeah it kind of it happened in the spring after trump was elected yeah, yeah yeah so it was it was interesting to see um well it was really interesting after reading about how small towns struggle to keep people living there to keep an economy going you know after say the death of an industry and then to actually go to these towns Mm. that really did feel often Mm -hmm. feel like shells i mean they would feel they would look like shells of a town because like the gm plants had gone away or farming had completely shifted to vineyards um And then to kind of start to feel the life that was happening behind the scenes, but um, to really like meet people who were living that struggle was profound. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I'd love to talk a little bit more about that question of, you know, the before and after of Trump. Mm. I mean, this is a project that you started during the Obama administration. And Mm -hmm. I feel like, you know, I remember people would always talk about how Obama had this kind of, preternatural ability to go to these small towns in Illinois and talk to these older white people and for somehow connect with them. And I feel like your piece has a lot of that sense of optimism that for everything that Mm. divides Americans, there's still a lot of common ground, even if we don't acknowledge it. So do you think you would approach this piece differently if you were to (laughs) have this idea now? I mean, such mm. a good question. I think we. I think Katie and I would have had to fight through a, more defense mechanisms and, and maybe fear. even more fear. Fear, yeah. yeah. Um, if we had started this during the, and I don't, I don't know that that fear would have actually been justified or real. But right. I think that, you know, it's, um, you know, we're as you know, since both Katie and I are kind of left-leaning Democrats, I guess we would say, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of, uh, you know, a huge amount of resistance to what some of the, ex- what the extreme right is proposing. Um, so I, I wonder, I wonder if we would have, <laughs> I wonder if we would have started the project at all, Katie. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I hoped I would, I would like to believe that we would have, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think we might have positioned it more if we were starting more as an excuse to have conversations across ideologies, you know, Mm -hmm. like art as the thing that provides the technology for people to actually converse. Um, It really makes me think about how this idea of who is in power can really, that, that, that kind of thinking can really oppress us and hamper us because Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when we were traveling and, you know, some of these towns, Milton Freewater is extremely conservative. Mm -hmm. The the white people are extremely conservative Mm -hmm. that way. And we, but we, many of them were our friends 
we were like working side by side, putting together potlucks with tea party members. Mm. And we didn't really see it as a threat because I think we felt like our people were in power, you know, <laughs> like I think yeah. we felt a certain amount of safety. And I, <laughs> I wonder if we would have felt that kind of agency or um, confidence uh, if we didn't have that feeling that like the, the, if we didn't feel like the government had our back, which I think we felt that for whatever then, reason. Yeah. However, on some level, we've talked about how we didn't, it didn't really come up a lot. Like when we were making a potluck with Jerry and mm. she was telling us how she just got together a bag of clothes for those nice boys who were holed up in the Oregon. Remember when a Yeah, they had taken geez, they had like Yeah. Yeah. The wildlife refuge yeah. occupation. Yeah. And yeah. you know, we were like, oh God, well, okay, like let can you <laughs> stir the tuna salad yeah um, she was also like we had met her because she was like an officer in the garden club yeah you know like so yeah. and so there is something about being in the room with people that's helpful like I recently had to um <laughs> I recently had to take somebody off my Facebook feed from one of the Miltons because their posts were so rapidly pro-Trump that I couldn't deal with it but i probably could still go into her pizza joint and enjoy saying hi and having a slice of pizza mm -hmm. you know like there's just more to a human being when you're actually well and i think that's you know like as we talk this through what really it, it was we often talk about the experience of going from finding the milton on wikipedia to mm -hmm. looking at the milton on the map to driving into the Milton and it becoming a real place. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, like once we started kind of like basically living in these Miltons, I mean, we're not forever, but we'd make so many visits. We, mm -hmm. people knew who we were, you know, it's, I, I'm from the South, I'm from New Orleans. And so, you know, when you're from the South, you've got your, you just got your Trump aunts and uncles. You just mm -hmm. do, you mm -hmm. know, and, and you're at, at Thanksgiving with them, you know, like they go in the hospital, you care for them, you love them, and you just don't talk about it, you know, it's so like you're still mm -hmm. living mm -hmm. in the world with them. And, and I think that some of that experience kind of helps me just go in and, and like our, our goal was to like, ex expose them to some new art making, to learn about their town and to help them think about ways could make their town art could make their town more livable, mm -hmm. which that in general is something that liberals and conservatives want in their town because most of these people loved their town. Mm -hmm. They could see it going down the tubes and they wanted to figure out how to, how to make things better. Mm -hmm. And so kind of be kind of inadvertent intermediaries mm -hmm. um, by not talking about politics and instead sticking with the project at hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and at the same time in the play, politics keeps kind of finding its way in through mm -hmm. the back door, maybe. Mm. I mean, it does seem like it's hard to talk about any of these issues without at some point brushing up against those kind of hot button issues that Katie, you were talking about earlier. Yeah. Mm. And for each each town we did the play in, each Milton, we shifted what that hot button issue was. We shifted what the core of the real sort of meta conflict was in the play. So in Milton Freewater, Oregon, where there was an issue between the Latinx community and the white community in terms of language, like everything in the town was in English. There was very much this belief of like, you're in this country, you better speak this language. And so that's that the play came head to head around that, around learn my language. In, um, and we also created, I, I, I wish... The book would have been way too long to include all three versions, but the mm -hmm. the adaptation that we did for Milton mm -hmm. Freewater, which was bilingual, and it, it we would we used English translated into Spanish verbally, Spanish translated into English verbally. Sometimes projections were on the screen, and sometimes we used Spanglish. Mm -hmm. And it took us a long time to kind of create that adaptation. Um, and and the beginning of the play was really teaching the audience. Mm -hmm. This is going to be in two languages. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the, the white turnout was larger than the Hispanic turnout. Or I don't know if I'm, I feel like I'm getting nervous, insecure around lang language and terminology here. Hispanic you is know, Latinx, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, but even, you know, even for the white audience who maybe had some resistance to the Hispanic community, um, 
for them to have to be in a place mm-hmm. in a play that was primarily in Spanish or as much in Spanish as English was a big step for them. first for them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and like actually seeing what their town was, was and was becoming and how that could be a positive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it was interesting. So, yeah. So Lisa, you mentioned that it, the book would have been far too long to include the, the scripts of the three different Milton mm-hmm. performances that have been done to date. And I'd love to talk a bit about how you put together the book because mm-hmm. you include the entirety of the North Carolina script mm-hmm. and then excerpts from the two others. Uh, why did you decide that the North Carolina one would be the one that you presented in full? Hmm. I think because it was the first. Hmm. Um, so in that way, it felt the most tied directly to the to the process we were describing in the book. But that's just coming out of my mouth mm-hmm. right now. I don't know. Would you agree, Lisa? It felt kind of the purest. Yeah, it's interesting that we didn't really question that that much. Uh-huh. We kind of came to the decision really quickly. Um, and I wonder, yeah, the, I'm actually not sure. It's a great, great I, question. I'm going to answer it by saying in the North Carolina script, we developed, that's where the play developed. And when we went to the other towns, we realized that there were certain sections or certain lines or that we wanted to shift and alter to, to better reflect the town that we are in. But the, the structure of the whole was absolutely recognizable from town to town. Mm-hmm. You know, I will say that now, cause we, we worked on that book off and on over a couple of years with some heavy editing and changing. Mm-hmm. We worked with an editor at 53rd street press. I will say that as we all change our opinions and our points of view, this year during the time of this, the new transformation of the black lives matter mu- movement. Mm-hmm. But if I could do it again, I would put the Milton Freewater script as the whole script. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would put excerpts of the other two um, to, to not to, to privilege something other than say white English. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but that's just as my own thinking evolves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that may have been a, it may have been a blind spot or it might just be a change of opinion, mm-hmm. you know, for now. So. And then something else that I think is really interesting about this book is I think there are more pages. I I might be wrong about the numbers, but I think there are at least as many, if not more pages about the process of this project Mm. than are occupied to the actual script. Mm. So why did you feel like it was so important for you to really highlight the, not just the final product, but the process of making Milton? Well, I think um, because for us, there wasn't a hierarchy to the two sides of the project. We couldn't have one without the other. It wasn't that we were warming up into the play or just doing research for the play and the play was the thing. The play fed back into the engagement and the engagement fed into the play. And, and I think we really wanted the book to express that too. Yeah, it's it because so the the artwork that we did with the people in town and just the conversations that we had with them were so much a part of what we were doing. And I actually think it surprised our publisher that we wanted to privilege the process as much as we did. But mm-hmm. we also really wanted the book to be a, a little bit of a case study or how-to guide for mm-hmm. other people who might mm-hmm. want to do something similar. Mm-hmm. That's why we were so transparent about the funding Mm-hmm. and how it was funded um, because Katie and I have been self-producing theater for a long time and it doesn't have to be as mysterious as it was when we start first started. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so we're really, in fact, one of our next goals, it's great that this interview is happening because we really want to do a special outreach to educators who may want to use this book as a teaching tool mm-hmm. in classes about community-based theater. Yeah, and I would just add to that that Pearl Demore in general, I think, is really interested in process, and we have lots of ways of bringing that out. Um, sometimes in the performances themselves, like a recent piece of ours called How to Build a Forest is an eight-hour performance installation where for six and a half hours, um, a, a team of seven people is slowly and obsessively building this fabricated forest and a space and the audience can come and go and it's complete for half an hour and then in the final hour it all gets taken away and it's kind of one of the things we're we're saying is 
you know, that very tip of completion is not really the thing. I mean, it's part Mm -hmm. of the thing, but it's not only the thing. The thing is the whole process of making it. So to invite people into the entirety of this felt correct to us. And that's such a powerful metaphor for what it often feels like to be working on any kind of theatrical yes, project. Yes, There's so, yes. so much more time is spent, you know, preparing to do the thing than ostensibly uh, doing the thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And audiences miss out on all that. And it's like so rich. It's why we do it, you know, mm-hmm. so we can be in there, make it with our collaborators and have the conversations and audiences really lose out. So in some ways, then- Milton people that we talked to in the whole engagement became our audience. So they were really with the project for so long. Mm-hmm. And then, um, so you talk about this being almost like a, a how to, and you include some information about how you funded the project. And you also include some sort of tips and tricks for doing community-based mm. theater that you learned through this project and yes. perhaps through other projects with Pearl Moore. So could you talk about what some of those lessons were? Oh God, you might have to remind us. Are you looking at the book? <laughs> are you looking no, at the book? What see. are some of your favorites? Yeah, pick a couple of your favorites. Yeah. Uh, talk about them. Yeah, we don't have me... the book in front of us. Um, oh, we have our heads in so many projects right now. I know. Isn't that um, how it is? One is, one is, I remember, remember I one is remember you're an artist, not a social worker. Yes, that's a mm. good one. Yeah. Because you can, um, yeah. you can be, you can, you can make these leaps to thinking that you can somehow, uh, solve. you know, solve solve problems that you actually that are actually completely outside of your skill set, and you can oh, be tempted yeah. to think that you know enough about the big picture of this town or this person to kind of like change things or help them. But what you are as an artist, and you have the skill to, to talk about art with them, make art with them, give them the tools to think about or make work about what is going on in their lives. Yes. And also remembering that you're there, you have a very limited window of this community and people Mm -hmm. like I had a, I had a pretty direct conversation with somebody in Milton Carolina who felt like, you know, we learned that lesson because somebody called us out about it a little bit. And they were like, you know, Milton has been here for a long time before you all showed up and it's going to be here for a long time after you're gone. And so that was, really- I wonder if, if, I don't know if this is listed in the things, but food helps like yeah, hospitality, yeah. inviting people to meals, making sure that you provide food at meetings, making mm-hmm. meals together. Uh, you know, this was it's interesting to talk about this now that we're still in the middle of this pandemic, but um, hopefully there'll be a time when that can be, uh, you know, part of the. And I think the most basic one that might might be the first one in that book is just ask questions, ask, what are, what are people up for? What are they interested in? What's the best, what's the best week in the school year to do a show that's not going to happen while Mm. students are doing other things. You know, we think that we need to solve things ourselves, but actually ask, ask for information, ask for help, ask and listen. I love the story about somebody getting mad at you for scheduling the performance during a, ch- a day where there was going to be a church picnic. Oh, it's, it's not quite that, but... Is it not a church like, picnic? It was, I, I, well, it was I'm bigger than that. It. it was a church trip. weekend a trip to D.C. Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah they, they actually didn't get mad at us, They, but but it was like a big... It was, was a, a big, big learning moment. Learning moment for us. And we. it was partially because some people that we thought were at the town hall meeting that was making the decision, they weren't... We thought they were there and they weren't. But we also could have done our homework. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's it is it's funny the kinds of things that can really take away a, when you're when you're dealing with a town of like 300 people, one church trip can take away a big part of your body, <laughs> yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And we we worked it out so that they could see it still. But it was it's just there were just things and even things like now this was you know five years ago or whatever, but you know, e-blasts and websites were not the best way to publicize not the show in Milton, North yeah. Carolina. It was like, they called, they like to call them rack cards. Mm-hmm. We call them postcards, but like postcards, phone calls, word of mouth, announcements at churches were mm-hmm. much more effective mm-hmm. than other, you know, digital forms of advertising. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in those towns about how to create a function in that town, you know, and so that's another thing that it's good to, to get that wisdom. And, and uh, could you talk a bit more about the community engagement projects? So we, uh, we've alluded to these a couple of times in the interview, but, you know, like, for example, in one of the towns, you helped to organize a parade down the main mm-hmm. street. Uh, mm-hmm. Could you talk about kind of how you decided what those projects should be in each town? Yeah, they really came out of, of conversations and roundtables over time with each town. So mm-hmm. the, the one you were talking about was the first project, which was, in t- there were there were a lo- there were several artists in Milton, North Carolina, but and then other people that owned antique stores. And a big uh, desire there was to get people to come and shop and hang out on their main street. Uh, and in one of our meetings, one of the artists said, first they said, "What if we had like a guild day where there were just artist demonstrations in town?" And then someone else brought the, up the idea of a street fair that had games and food. And what we wound up doing was a combination of the two. And it was, it was the first annual Milton, North Carolina street fair. Um, and it was a, a weekend long event that had, it did it had pottery demonstrations, blacksmith demonstrations, several churches set up food booths, Pearl Demore taught art workshops. There was music and, um, and it really did bring a lot of people through town. Um, and we, we helped them plan it. And then we also helped them facilitate meetings after the street fair so they could talk about, you know, what went well and what could go better. And they kept up the street fair uh, yearly after that first one. It's interesting because they had taken a pause this year. They were going to take a pause anyway to kind of restructure it and they couldn't really have it because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, But that was, that was specific to their goals. And yes, there was a parade to launch the first day of the street (laughs) fair. It was really fun. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to talk about Massachusetts, Katie? Sure. So, well, in both uh, Oregon and Massachusetts, actually, we got a grant from the NEA called an Our Town Grant, which is a big matching grant. And so, the project got a lot bigger in both of those towns because the budget suddenly got a lot bigger. So the kind of engagement ideas that started coming up with our collaborators in town were, were much kind of longer overreaching sets of programs. So in Milton Freewater, there was a real interest in, can we create events where both Spanish and English speakers are occupying the room together? And can we use creative ideas to, to do that, uh, people were also interested in how to make um, art happen in some of the underused spots in town. So we worked with somebody, a local artist, to make a pop-up art gallery. Um, we did creative programming for kids. We created a program called Talk, Play, Dream, Ablar Hugar Sonyar to, to um, sort of frame these events as chances for people to come together and talk and play and dream about what their town can be. And in Massachusetts, the uh, programs we we created were under the auspices of a term that people came up with called Milton Reflecting. So a series of creative programs that gave people a chance in Milton to kind of reflect about who they were as a town, specifically as it come as it pertained to race and current racial dynamics and past racial dynamics and hopefully future different dynamics. Um, and that led in some to that create courageous conversation um, program that continues on today. Mm. Um, At the time of the book's publication, uh, you hadn't yet done a performance in the Wisconsin or Louisiana Mm -hmm. Miltons. And obviously that's not possible uh, for the moment, but do you have plans to to try to complete the, the cycle of five towns? We, we don't have plans right now. Although, although we keep, hoping that we could at least go back to maybe do a reading of the play. And we've been in more in most conversation about that with some of our contacts in Milton, Wisconsin, Mm -hmm. Milton, Louisiana is a little trickier in some ways because Milton, Louisiana is actually not an incorporated city or town. It's still called Milton, but I think they had just lost their post office right before we started visiting. Mm -hmm. Um, So there isn't quite as much infrastructure, but to be honest, and I think we talk about this in the book, um, we, we didn't quite have a, 
a reasonable picture of the amount of time, uh, financial resources and emotional resources that this that was going to take to make this piece and to get the piece to all five Miltons. And so in many ways, the three Miltons was really and truly all we had the capacity for as a two person company. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but we're, we're, we're hopeful. So, I, you know, I, I think it was a, hopefully in a good way, an example of that, you know, old phrase, our, our reach exceeded our grasp, which I think is a good thing. Um, and, uh, but we really, it really would be wonderful to return and, mm-hmm. and hopefully do something to kind of close out the project in these other towns. Mm-hmm. And so now as a final question, I'd like to know in, in kind of a big picture sense, what did you learn through doing this project? Mm. It's funny, as Lisa was talking, my mind was just drifting to, to, all the amazing experiences we had that ranged from, you know, like hanging out on an enormous windmill blade that was lying in the middle of the field in Milton Freewater, having chicken salad with Twinkle in North Carolina. It's not an answer to what you learned, but I, I was just sort of flooded with the multitude of experiences we had with individuals all over the country and, and what an incredible. Well, and I think a way to encapsulate that into one thing we learned or, or maybe truly experienced is just that the diversity in this country is such a gift. It's mm. just, and, and just diversity of race, but diversity of expertise, yes, diversity of local knowledge. It just like, it just goes deeper and deeper the longer you stay in these places, you know, mm. and, so I think that's one thing we learned. Uh, I think, uh, what was that? What was the other thing I was, I just had like two other things. You think, I'll, I'll offer one thing, which mm-hmm. is, it, it never ceased to amaze me um, how no matter who we talk to, no matter what their political views were, or whatever their level of education or schooling was, every person is thinking deeply about who they are in the world, everybody. And, and that felt like an important takeaway mm-hmm. of this project that keeps you from making those snap judgments about, oh, those people in small towns, right? Like everybody is, is having a very complex experience of being a human being on this earth. Well, and, and then I would add to that in order to understand that you have to be able to open yourself up to talk, talk to them Mm -hmm. and be with them, which is something that, you know, as, as we all, I think we all are kind of taking stock of the kind of American workaholic experience, Mm -hmm. how hard we have to work just to kind of like keep our careers going or keep a roof over our head, which gives us very little time to sit and Mm -hmm. let other people into our lives. And I think that is a big loss. It's a real, like we, we were younger, Mm -hmm. we were mobile, we had, some arts funding, not a lot, but some. So we were able to go out and take this time. And it's something that most people don't have a chance to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and over and over again, we heard people after we had our conversations with them, they would say, I, it has been so long since I've talked to somebody like this. Mm-hmm. I haven't had this kind of conversation in forever. And one other thing that I learned is that artists are everywhere, but they don't mm-hmm. always call themselves artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I'm still chewing on that because part of me thinks that in some rural areas that like when people think of the word artist, they think of something intellectual and urban. Yeah. And so they don't consider themselves that. Uh, and, they, and they often downplay their talents, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's like quilting or making Adirondack chairs out of (laughs) old skis. They were the most beautiful chairs. Um, You know, uh, and, and I, and I also feel like I thought so much about the WPA Uh and I thought so much about like that. I feel like through the cutting off of arts funding and through maybe in part to all of the uproar around the quote unquote NEA four or five or whatever in the eighties, there has just been such a, a stigma around the idea of, of art and artists and what art can do. And I just feel like because there's not arts funding that's flowing throughout the country, 
these t- these smaller towns are just getting suffocated when it comes to artistic inspiration. Mm-hmm. And the other thing I learned is that the minute you start bringing art into the picture as a tool to change people's lives or change people's towns, people start getting inspired. It's fun to think about. You mm-hmm. have action items. You can make the thing happen. <laughs> and you start to realize, wow, I, I can take charge and change agency. things. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that necessarily that certain people in power want individuals to feel that way mm-hmm. <laughs> because that can lead to revolution. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I really felt that like palpably it was, it was frightening <laughs> to be honest, to see people sort of stuck um, and, and not really, I, I'm, I'm not trying to like make a generalization about everyone that we met in these towns it's just, it was, I, I felt the hurdles that they had to jump over in order to kind of like feel like they had the resources, the time and the energy mm-hmm. to just use art to, in their daily lives. Mm-hmm. So. That's great. Well, I think that's a great place to end on. Pearl Damore, thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. Oh, thanks for having us. Thank you.